in, in preparation for the Lord's Supper that you'll be celebrating, Lord willing, next week, Consistory asked if I'd preach a message that was somewhat pertaining to that, and in, in light of that, we'll read from 1 Peter, and we'll look specifically, I should say, specifically, at the verses 13 through 21. But we'll start from verse 1, even though it says on the, the bulletin at verse 12, but we'll start from verse 1 and then we'll read through to 21. So, 1 Peter is a letter written to, as it says, they're strangers and exiles or pilgrims, as the, the passage says, and these are a group of Christians from a, 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 a wide range of different places in Asia Minor, and they were experiencing um, suffering. And it wasn't because of some sort of statewide persecution, but most scholars would say that it's based just living out their Christian walk of faith before their neighbors. So these were a group of Gentile converts, and now Peter is, is addressing them here, and he's giving them a letter of encouragement as they are suffering from being scorned and maligned by their neighbors because of the faith that they believe. So 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 1, and we'll continue to 21. Hear the word of the Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you, and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold or gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having seen, you love. Though you now do not see Him, yet believing, you rejoice with a joy inexpressible and full of glory. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ was in them, was indicating, when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us, They are ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels desire to look into. Therefore, and this follows our text, therefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober-minded, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ." As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also 
be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So far, the reading of God's word. After the proclamation of the gospel, we will sing from hymn 81, verses 1, 4, and 7. Brothers and sisters of our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ, if you're into cycling, or maybe you've seen a bit of the Tour de France or anything like that, then the the name Lance Armstrong might be a name that you're familiar with. So he was an American cyclist who who was quite a famous American cyclist because he had won seven Tour de France titles or so, but his fame quickly turned into infamy when it was discovered that he had been using sport-enhancing drugs through all seven of those Tour de France titles. And as you can imagine, the sporting community was outraged by this. They were outraged. The American team was disgraced by his actions. We should ask ourselves, why? Why why, Why was there such an outrage other than the fact that it was just unfair? Well, it's because Lance Armstrong, as the American cyclist, was representing more than just himself. He wasn't just competing as an individual, but he was competing as someone representing the American cyclist team. So like a, any other international athlete, they represented more than just themselves. They actually represent the country and what the country stands for. And so he had to conduct himself in such a way, in, in that way, in a way that reflected the values of his country that he was, that he was uh, competing for. And that's because who we are impacts the way we live. Well, congregation, Peter tells us something similar this afternoon. Peter calls us to pay careful attention to our conduct. You see, in this letter, he's explained who these, these people are. And now, in our text, he's telling them how they are to live. So there's a transition from who they are to how they are to live. And that's because our identity impacts how we live. Your conduct as a Christian flows out from the knowledge of who you already are. We are God's children. And therefore, it is only fitting that we conduct ourselves in a way that reflects it. And so our theme this afternoon is conduct yourselves as ransomed children of your heavenly Father. And we'll see that our conduct ought to be rooted 
in a new perspective, and then a new identity, and finally a new, a renewed admiration. So our conduct ought to be rooted in a new perspective. Now, as I mentioned earlier, verse 13 is a, is a bit of a transition point in this chapter. Peter is moving from an explanation of, of the identity of these elect exiles, who they are in Christ, and now he's giving them an exhortation of how they are to live. But before he commands us to conduct ourselves in a certain way, we need a change in our perspective. And this is something we're quite familiar with. Maybe as a parent, if your child is acting up, you might send them to their room and tell them to come back only when they have a different attitude. To come back with a better attitude. That's because our attitude affects our actions, whether positively or negatively. And so this verse is about readying our minds for action. In the ESV it says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. So prepare your minds for action. Now the New King James Version that we have in front of us says, gird up the loins of your mind. Now some of you might prefer the other translation because it's easier to read, but even though this one may be a bit harder to understand, it actually captures well what Peter is speaking about. Because the people in Peter's day, if they were going to do something physical, they had to tuck in the long robe that they were wearing, they had to tuck it into their belt in order to give their legs more, more freedom of movement. And that's kind of self-obvious to us because if they have these big, long, draping robes, they're not going to be able to do a task that's more physical. For the children amongst us, just think of if you're doing a sack race. Well, have you ever tried to run in a Hessian sack? Well, you can't. You just, your feet get tangled up and you, and you fall to the ground. So if you go outside to, to play sport, maybe after, when you're uh, at school, you're going to be wearing your sports clothes or something like that. Well, for Peter's day, tucking up their roid, go, uh, sorry, girding up their loins was a way to put on their active wear. But it's more than just a nice word picture. Peter is actually recalling Israel's history with this sort of language of girding up the loins of your mind. Now in Exodus 12, Exodus 12 verse 11, God tells his people, so they're celebrating the Passover, they're getting ready to, to go away from, from Egypt, they're preparing for the Exodus, and then he tells them as they're eating the Passover, he says, you shall eat it, that is the Passover lamb, with your belt fastened, and literally it says, girding up your loins, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So this was just before the Exodus. So they were about to leave Egypt, they are about to head to the promised land, and so their garments had to be tucked into their belt, they had to be ready, because they were going to go out in haste. And so Peter takes that analogy, and he, well, he takes that situation, and he tells us not to gird up our loins, but to gird up our minds. And the reason for this is because to walk as children of our Heavenly Father, our Holy Father, we need to have a new mindset, a new perspective. And to have a better mindset or a, or a better attitude, it takes preparation. And the way that we prepare ourselves, Peter says, is by setting our hope fully 
on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Christ. And notice how active it is. You set your hope. You set your mind on it. You, you focus on it. That's not something that would come naturally to his readers. It's not as though they could just sit on the couch passively and, and all of a sudden they would set their hope on, on the grace of Jesus Christ. Rather, it was something that they had to focus intently on. They had to actively pursue. And now the grace that Peter is talking about here is the grace that he was saying at the beginning of the letter. He's talking about the fact that they had been reborn by God. That now they are children of God. And being children of God, the fact that they had a living hope because of Jesus Christ. The fact that they had a new inheritance that God was keeping in store for them. And so he's telling them we are to set our hope fully on that. On the future revelation of Christ. And that hope, as we saw this morning even, the hope of the future changes the way we live now. And so we're meant to actively set our minds on that. And think again of the Israelites. Just before they, they go into the Exodus, if you think about it, they're going to leave Egypt, leave the land of slavery, and they're heading to the promised land. But it's not as though that they were going to take some sort of, it's not as though they're going to take the Camel Express or, or some sort of fast way of getting around. No, they're going to go there on foot. It was going to be a hard slog day in, day out. And so they had to set their mind actively on what was coming, that future promised land. Because as soon as they lost sight of that, then they would start getting distracted. And they would lose sight of the beautiful inheritance that God had in store for them. For them. And the same is true for us this afternoon. If we lose sight of the future glory that awaits us, then what's going to happen is that we're not going to be able to conduct ourselves rightly during our earthly journey here. And we're going to do what, this, what we saw this morning. We're going to set our mind not on the grace of God, but instead we're going to set our mind on those, the Jordan valleys of our day. And therefore, we need to be sober-minded. We need to be sober-minded. And now here he's not talking about drunkenness, even though that is included in the word. Rather, he's talking about being free from excess in our thinking. So the opposite of this word is, is a lack of control or extremes. And so Peter is warning us about a sort of a mental intoxication that, that actually blocks our spiritual alertness. It blocks our understanding. And so if we're free from those excesses or if we're free from extremes in our thinking, then we're not going to be able to focus on what is truly important. We're going to be able to set our hope on Christ. But if we're not, if we're not, then we're going to be prey to the attacks of the devil. And that's what we read in 1 Peter 5 verse 8. 1 Peter 5 verse 8, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful, why? Because your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whomever he chooses to devour. So Satan's most effective tool against us is spiritual intoxication, you could say. It's a clouding of, of our minds by distracting us by extreme thinking, whatever that may be, because that's going to pull us away from what is really important. 
And so congregation, we have to ask ourselves, what are we filling our minds with? Because if we're filling our minds with the wrong thing, then we're going to be distracted and our vision is going to be blurred. And we will struggle to put our hope in the right thing. Or I should say, in the, in the right person. We will place our hope in, in our work. We will place our hope in our status. We will place our hope in our social networks, in our likes on Facebook, our hits on Instagram, our, our Snapchat friends, our vacations, our, our favorite TV series, our leisure activities, whatever it is. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, well what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? And and it's true that these things aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves. But the question we should be asking is not, is it wrong? What's wrong with it? But is it helpful for us? Is it helpful? The writer to the Hebrews, he urges us to cast aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And then let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So if you think of a sprint runner... If you think of a runner, he's not going to run with a backpack with all kinds of stuff in there. And that's not because the backpack is something wrong in and of itself. It's because it doesn't help him run. It weighs him down. And so when he's preparing for his race, if he's preparing for his run, he's going to keep in mind the finish line. He's going to keep in mind that goal, and that is going to influence the way that he prepares for the race. He might even think about everything, even down to the shoes that he's wearing. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is what is distracting us from our eternal future? What is hindering our run? Because a sober-minded perspective on life will cast aside, will throw away anything that distracts us from that hope. Because ultimately, brothers and sisters, if we set our hope on anything else, We have no hope. We can't set our hope partially on Christ and then fill it out with other things. No, we have to set our hope fully on Jesus Christ. Because when trials come, when we are afflicted by by illness, by sickness, by by, uh, death, well, our jobs, our vacations, our possessions, our likes on Facebook, all those things won't give us hope. These are not going to sustain us in our walk before the Lord. It's not going to sustain us in in pursuing that future blessing to come. It's the hope of eternal glory will put things in perspective for us. It will enable us to conduct ourselves as a child of God in this broken world. And so having looked at our, our perspective, we also have to look at our identity because we're new people. Peter writes, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, be holy. So he tells them they're children, they're obedient children. He doesn't compare them, he says, you are obedient children. And this, of course, is a natural result of the fact that God has caused us to be born again, which he said in verse, in verse 3. God has begotten us, it says. So what we see is there's a transfer of of fathership, you you could say, that's going on in this passage. 
We're no longer children of the devil. We're now children of our heavenly father. We have a new father. And so that means that because we are new children, it means that we're going to conduct ourselves differently. That's because who we are impacts the way we act. And if you think of the readers of Peter's day, before they, they came to Christ, before they came to faith, they lived in ignorance. As Paul writes, although they knew God, they did not honor God, nor did they give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. They were alienated from God because of their ignorance. And what did they do instead? Instead of pursuing God or giving thanks to God, rather they, they pursued their, their passions, their lusts, their desires. Their lives were shaped and modeled around satisfying their own desires. They lived like children of their previous father, the devil. Like father, like son. Sinful father, sinful children. But then Peter says something radical happened. Something radical happened to these people. God changed them. According to his great mercy, he caused them to be born again. They were reborn. They have a new father. And that means they cannot go back to those old ways anymore. They cannot turn back to those old desires because they have a new father. And if you think about it, it was very tempting for them to do this. Like I mentioned before the reading of, of God's word, we, we saw that they were, they were afflicted because of the scorn and the mockery of people around them. You think they were Gentiles living in a, in a land, of, they were living in Rome, and the people there, all, they lived to satisfy their desires. You think of the gladiatorial games, which glorified cruelty. Or think of the religious festivals of the times that were, that were characterized by sexual practices. And there was gluttony, there was drunkenness. And so this was the environment that they lived in. And so it was hard for them not to be influenced by that, especially because that was their former way of living. That was their former lifestyles. You could think of it this way. You could think of uh, one of these individuals. They go outside, they see their neighbor, and their neighbor's like, hey, do you want to go to this drinking party? And he says, sorry, I can't go. He says, are you serious? Ever since you become a Christian, you're, you're such a prude. You never come to these things anymore. And so they were scorned and they were scoffed at. As it says, when it rains in the world, it trickles in the church. And it was raining hard in the world. And so Peter is urging them. He's urging them, do not be conformed to your former passions. Don't be conformed to those old lifestyles which are so seductively luring. Rather, he says, rather he calls them to holiness. As God is holy. God our Father is a holy God. He's holy in wisdom. He's holy in power, holy in splendor, holy in, in righteousness and love. He's holy in all His perfect attributes. You could say holiness is who God is. It's His character. And as a result of His holiness, there is a separation of anything that doesn't measure up to that standard. Of anything that doesn't measure up to, to pure perfection. God delights in all things that accord with His character, but he, he hates anything that is contrary. 
And so that means that the former passions that, that Peter's audience were so used to, they're out. They couldn't be shaped by that anymore because they were new people. And therefore, their, their conduct had to reflect that. Now, brothers and sisters, there's something we, we cannot miss here. Because notice how Peter calls them. He says, be holy. He doesn't, he doesn't command them to become holy. He doesn't say, become holy as your heavenly Father is holy. He says, be holy. And this is important because it goes against the legalistic tendencies that we have in our hearts. We have such a tendency in our hearts to try to be holy, to try to become holy. And that's not to say that that's a bad thing. That's not to say that that's a bad thing. But the thing is, he's calling us rather to be who we already are. He's saying, you don't live a certain way to become a child of God. No, you conduct yourself in a certain way because you already are a child of God. And I'll repeat that. You don't live a certain way to become a child of God. But you live a certain way because you already are a child of God. And this was true already in the Old Testament. So Peter is quoting a command that was given to the Israelites. Be holy as I am holy. We read that in Leviticus 19. And they received that command after they had been delivered. They weren't, trying to, they weren't trying to be holy so that God would deliver them. It was, no, you have been delivered. Now live as my people. They were God's people, and so they had to act like it. And congregation, that call is the same for us today. We have a new father, just like the readers of our text. We have a new father who has made us his children through Christ. And so we are called this afternoon, to act like that. We're called to conduct ourselves in such a way that matches who we are. And notice how he's calling us to be holy in all our conduct. It's not just a one-day affair. It's not something that is just for church, or it's just for Bible study, or it's just for the consistory room, or it's just for anything like that. No, it's an all-week, 24-7 affair. It's something that's every day. Peter was calling them to be holy in, their, in, all their, in all areas of life. To reflect God in the way that they conducted themselves at work or at home. In the way they related to their wives and their children and their spouses. He was calling them to holiness in the dressing room after they had played hockey. He was calling them to holiness even when they were playing hockey. He was calling them to hol holiness when they were out with their friends having a beer or when they were on their fishing trips or when they're in the car with their girlfriends or boyfriends. He's calling them to a holiness that encapsulates all of our whole lives. Because, brothers and sisters, who you are affects how you live. So our God is a holy God. Nothing impure or defiled can be in His presence. God hates that which is unholy because it's contrary to His very character. And so that means He can't turn a, turn a blind eye to our sinful conduct. His perfect righteousness demands that it must be judged. And that brings us to our third point. 
In verse 17, it says, And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear during the time of your exile. So the first part of that sentence is not a sort of an if-then statement. It's not like, if you call on, then you're going to do this. No, he's actually saying, since. He's assuming it to be true. Since you call on God, the Father who judges, conduct yourselves with fear. Conduct yourselves with fear. Now, you may have heard the phrase, which is kind of popularized lately, which is faith over fear. You see, many today believe that a Christian should never fear, especially not God. Fear is not fitting for a Christian, they might say. However, the Bible clearly teaches that fear is a very appropriate response to God. Just think of Psalm 19, what does it say? It says, the fear of God is clean. In Proverbs, we are told that the fear of God leads to wisdom. Or think of Proverbs 14, 27. It says that the fear of God is the fountain of life. So fear of God is life. So what kind of fear are we talking about here? Well, the fear that Peter is calling them to is a sort of a, is a reverent awe. A deep admiration and respect for God because of who He is. Because of His holiness. Because of His supreme excellence. And this is something that's in keeping with the rest of Scripture. Just think of what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7. He actually combines both holiness and fear together. He says there, he says, Since you have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So that means a natural response to the holiness of God is fear. It's a reverent awe for who He is. Now, why should we fear God? Why should we have this sort of profound respect for God? Well, it's because God is our judge. The same God you pray to is the same God who judges you. And that's the emphasis here in this text. The emphasis is not that the judge is our Father, but that that the Father is our judge. And because our God is holy, that means His judgment is impartial. And the word impartial means that He doesn't pay respect to persons. He doesn't doesn't let one person off because of their circumstances. So He doesn't cut anyone slack just because of their ethnicity, because of their intellect, because of their social standing, because of the church that they're from, or whatever it is. No, He judges them impartially. He judges them according to each one's deeds. And with the the emphasis of love in our time, this is something that we can be in danger of forgetting. We can think of sometimes, sometimes we can think of God as though He's some sort of granddad in the sky who sort of smirks at our mischievousness, But the God we serve is not like that. He hates anything contrary to His nature. And so brothers and sisters, even though we are are His children, His people, we should not presume on His grace. We should not use our privilege to excuse unholy conduct. Our privilege as members of God's family must not lead us to, to pride or to assumption. 
or presumption, I should say. Yes, he is our father, and for that we can rejoice, but he is also our judge, and so that impacts the way we live. But if our text ended there, beloved, then we would fear God not out of awe or reverence, but we would fear God with dread. We would be terrified of him. Because if we just think of ourselves, even just think of our conduct this past week, we know that we do not measure up to that standard. We do not measure up to the holiness which God requires us to live according to. If he judged us impartially, if he judged us according to each of our deeds, we think of the psalmist, who could stand? Indeed, we would be damned to hell. We would stay forever separated outside of his communion, outside of his grace, which is a dreadful thing. As it says in Hebrews, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But what is amazing, brothers and sisters, is that the holiness of God does not only move him to holy righteousness, which judges sin, but also to holy love. Verse 18 He says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish or spot. And these verses changes everything. You were ransomed, beloved. Peter is not only using an imagery from slavery, which his, his readers would have been very familiar with, but he's, again, he's recalling the, the history of Israel. He's recalling that history of the Exodus. And that the picture of redemption from slavery is often how God describes his acts in the Exodus. So you think about it, the people had to gird up their loins. They had to eat the Passover in haste. And then what does Moses tell them? He says, remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And later in Deuteronomy 7 verse 8, he says, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you. Or you could say, ransomed you from the house of slavery. They were slaves of Pharaoh, but God redeemed them. God brought them out by his mighty hand. Now, beloved, we're not slaves of Pharaoh, but we're slaves of Satan. We're slaves of Satan walking in darkness. But God bought us out of that. He ransomed us. He redeemed us. But that redemption did not come without a price. Back then, slaves were costly, very costly. And to transfer a slave only came once the the money was exchanged. So redemption comes with a price. Well, what is the price of our redemption? Peter says it's nothing else than the blood of the Son of God himself. Slaves are bought with silver and gold, which is valuable, but nothing is compared to the blood of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, that has bought us out of slavery. So the redemption from the slavery of Egypt was ushered in by the blood of a lamb, which you read of in Exodus. But our redemption from our slavery to sin 
is ushered in by the spotless lamb, Jesus Christ. Just think of John when he sees Jesus coming for the baptism. He says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the spotless lamb. It's almost as if Peter puts it like this. It's almost as if he says, for delivery from slavery, you need money. For delivery from the slavery of sin, you need more than money. We need nothing else than the precious blood of Jesus. And so what we see is that the holiness of God, which moves him to righteously judge sin, also moved him to give his son to die for us. And that is no small thing for the father to do. If you read through the gospels, what you see is that Jesus had an intimate relationship with the father. And even you think before that, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were united in in perfect love. And so it wasn't an easy thing for the Father to give His Son. But what is amazing is that God did not withhold even His Son in order to ransom us from the clutches of Satan. Grace is freely given, but that does not mean it's cheap. Brothers and sisters, I want, let's, let's just spend a moment thinking about that, the price that was paid. Because the, the, the price of something often reflects its value. If you buy something, the price is meant to reflect the value. And so that means that we get really excited, extremely excited, when the price is less than the value. That's probably why some of you might go to the shops on on Boxing Day, even though it's a long way away. You might go to the shops because you can buy a top-of-the-line hockey stick for a, a better price, for a cheap deal. Or you can buy a beautiful dress for a deal. And it's a deal because the price is less than the value that you're getting. But on the other hand, it means that if the price doesn't match the value, we walk away. It means that if, if, if the thing that we're getting and, and the thing that we get doesn't compare to the price, well, we leave it. We don't buy it. Now, brothers and sisters, when we were stuck in the mire of our sin, there was only one price that could be paid. And that was the blood of the Son of God. That was the only price that could satisf- satisfy God's wrath against sin. That was the price, the blood of the Son of God. And if we think about it, there is no way, humanly speaking, that God should have paid that price. Humanly speaking, God should have walked away. The blood of Jesus for stubborn, rebellious sinners, it's too much. It doesn't match. We are not worth such a great price. The blood of Jesus is far too great, it's far too precious, far too glorious to purchase our freedom. How could it be worth it, beloved? We were slaves. We were slaves and by nature it's not as though we were stuck crying out to God. No, what does the catechism tell us? By nature we hate God and our neighbor. We rebel against God. And yet our merciful God moved in holiness, was willing to pay our ransom, 
was willing to satisfy his justice with the blood of his dear son. How could God do that? This is what Paul is getting at in Romans 5 or 7. He says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one may even dare to die, but God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, he died for us. Christ died for us. Brothers and sisters, doesn't that just fill you with admiration, with awe for who your God is? We have been ransomed with a price, the blood of our dear Savior. So how could we? How could we now live for our passions, our desires? How could we live for our jobs, for our party lifestyles, or whatever it is? How could we do that? How can we conduct ourselves in any other way other than living as children of our God? Because we've been bought with a price. And that is what you will celebrate next week with the Lord's Supper. That you have been bought with a price. The precious blood of Jesus Christ. So when you celebrate Lord's Supper and you see the, the, the wine going into the cup, think of Jesus' blood poured out for you to save you from your sin. That is what God did for you. Peter says it was for the sake of you. It was for the sake of you that Jesus spilled his blood. It was for the sake of you that he died. It was for the sake of you that he rose again and that he ascended into heaven so that your hope would be set on nothing else than God, so that your hope and your faith would be in God. Isn't that amazing, beloved? The holy God who judges sin was moved in his holiness to send his son to die for us. Such grace gives us a new perspective on life, doesn't it? Such love gives us a new identity as a people of God. And such radical mercy fills us with awe for God. So therefore, beloved, as blood-bought children, live as children of your heavenly Father. Amen.